I have talked to physicians, nurses, and teachers within and beyond our community who have told me that they are exhausted. In some cases, they are planning to leave their professions. In some cases, they've already done so. And they're not alone. According to one poll of healthcare workers here in BC, three out of four said that they had experienced pandemic-related burnout. And according to another survey, four out of five teachers said that over the last couple of years, their mental health had declined. In the field of pastoral ministry, there are similar trends, as well as in other work domains. You've probably heard of the phenomenon called the Great Resignation, as people are opting into that or out, depending on how you look at it. Now, it may be the case that you are not on the verge of burnout, but chances are that you have given yourself to people or you have expended yourself for a cause that has left you feeling depleted in some way. We're in a series right now on resilient faith, and today we're going to be looking at the experience of Elijah. Elijah was a strong and courageous prophet of God. He had experienced a great victory, a great personal high, but then he crashed. He had expended enormous amounts of energy, and he hit a real low. And we're going to see what sustained him and what enabled him to run his race literally and figuratively for God. Elijah was a prophet who was zealous for the honor of God. And so he challenged the prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. He said, you build an altar to your God and sacrifice a bull on it. I'll build an altar to my God, to the God of Israel, and sacrifice a bull on it. And we will determine who is the real God by the God who answers by fire. And the prophets of Baal are game, and so they build an altar. They sacrifice a bull on it, and then they begin to cry out, Oh, Baal, answer us. Answer us, Baal. Nothing happens. And so these prophets begin to cut themselves with knives and swords. Blood is flowing. They cry out to Baal, Answer us, answer us, but nothing happens. Elijah, the prophet, is not above taunting them at this point. He asks the prophets of Baal, Where is your God? Maybe your God is in deep meditation. Or maybe your God is away on vacation. Or maybe your God is on the toilet. They cry out all the louder, answer us, Baal, answer us. They cut themselves more violently, but nothing happens. And so Elijah steps forward. And on his altar, he sacrifices a bull and then douses the altar and the sacrifice, not just once with water, but three times until water is dripping off the altar, creating puddles around the altar. And then Elijah steps forward and simply prays, 
Lord, answer me, so that the people will know that you are God. And then fire falls from heaven, consumes the bull on the altar, consumes the wood that has been holding the, the, the bull, and, and burns the stones and the soil and licks up all the water. And the people fall on their faces and they cry out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And this is a great high point, a pinnacle in Elijah's life and ministry. But because he has, has expended so much physical, emotional, and spiritual energy, he begins to fall. He begins to crash. And then Queen Jezebel, who is a supporter of the prophets of Baal, and very angry that Elijah has humiliated and defeated her prophets, says to Elijah, I'm coming after you. I'm going to have you killed. And Elijah feels despair. And he runs for his life, 20 miles from Mount Carmel into the wilderness of Judah, where he collapses exhausted under a broom tree. He feels like he's done, that it's over for him. And he prays, God, take my life. I want to die. And then in 1 Kings 19, we read these words. Then he, Elijah, lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Elijah looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So Elijah got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai. Let's pray. Living God, the God who met Elijah in his weakness, in his desolation, meet us that we may be sustained and strengthened so that we might fulfill the purpose for which you have created us. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So in this passage, we see that when Elijah is utterly depleted and depressed and collapses under this broom bush, it's interesting and noteworthy that God doesn't condemn Elijah. God doesn't criticize him. It's also noteworthy that God doesn't offer Elijah a, quote, spiritual solution. Doesn't say, read a long passage in the Bible. God doesn't say, engage in an extended period of fasting and prayer. No, what does God do for Elijah? God allows him two long sleeps and then gives him two nourishing meals of freshly baked bread over coals and two long drinks of water. When Elijah feels down and out, God cares for Elijah in the most holistic, loving kinds of ways. Now, we may not be at the same breaking point as Elijah is, but chances are we too have known disappointment, stress, stress, 
fatigue. And God comes to us, and as he did for the prophet Elijah, offers us his restorative gifts of sleep, of food and drink, and as we see later in the passage, the opportunity to move his body outdoors. Elijah wouldn't have considered this exercise more movement by necessity, but we'll get to that later. We also see that God offers Elijah the touch of an angel, the presence of a friend, and then finally, God's very voice. And when we are feeling down and drained, one of the things that God wants to give to us that he gave Elijah is the gift of restorative sleep and rest. In Psalm 127, the psalmist writes, he that is God gives to his beloved sleep. The Hebrew can be translated, God gives to his beloved while they sleep. Either translation is equally valid in the context I feel that the latter translation is better. God gives to his beloved son or daughter while he or she is sleeping. In other words, God is at work while we sleep in our bodies and in our world. Now, I don't know how much you appreciate sleep or not. Maybe you don't feel like you need much sleep or it's that important to you. It's probably more important to you than you imagine. Experiments have been done which show that if we were to interrupt your sleep for just three days and nights so that every time you were about to fall into a deep REM sleep and dream, we woke you up, after two or three days, you would likely start to show symptoms of psychosis. Sleep is more restorative than we know. Matthew Walker is a professor of neuroscience at the University of California at Berkeley and considered one of the leading experts on sleep. He points out that sleep acts as a kind of emotional first aid for us. So we go through a stressful experience during the day, and then when we sleep well, we experience a kind of nocturnal balm that takes the sharp edges off of those experiences. Matthew Walker says, we say that time heals all wounds, but it might be more accurate to say time during sleep heals all wounds. And as God did for Elijah, he wants to do for you. He wants to give to you his beloved while you sleep, while I sleep. Another gift that helps to restore Elijah when he is down and depleted is nourishing food. When he wakes from his sleep, he sees by his head there is freshly baked bread over coals and a jar of water. And he is rejuvenated by this nutritious food, by this drink. And one of the ways that God wants to strengthen us is through nutritious food. We know that if we eat highly processed food, while we may experience initial pleasure, especially if that highly processed food is engineered with just the right combination of salt and sugar, so that it's hard to say no to that food. We know that even though we might enjoy that food initially, highly processed food tends to leave us feeling 
eventually more anxious and even sometimes a little depressed. We also know that when we eat nutritious food, as uh, Jadine well knows as she teaches in this area, whether it's whole grains or fruits and vegetables or proteins through fish, meat, eggs, beans, that our bodies release dopamine and serotonin, which lift our mood and help us think more clearly, concentrate better. Food, of course, can sustain us. And maybe this is some unexpected good news about food. There's also evidence that when we really enjoy food, that it enhances our overall well-being. Many people from my country of origin, Japan, believe this. People in Japan and other parts of the world believe that if you are overly careful about measuring every last calorie, calculating everything that you eat, and that you cut out entire categories of food that you enjoy, sometimes this can backfire. I used to sail with a retired Japanese executive. He used to lead a famous beer company in Japan as one of its vice presidents. And I remember him telling me on the boat one day, my physician has told me that because of my high blood pressure, I need to cut out all my desserts, and I love sweets, and I need to cut out all alcohol. And I was the vice president of a beer company, so I enjoy a beer with dinner. He explained, I dutifully complied with my doctor's guidance, and then guess what happened? My blood pressure shot up because I was so stressed out. Now, I'm not saying that if you're going to risk your life, you should eat whatever you enjoy most. I'm not saying, you know, put your life at risk. I am saying that when you eat food that you enjoy, including an occasional treat, that your body will release dopamine and endorphins, and you will actually feel better. You'll have a, a greater sense of well-being. Some of you might be asking, Bible verse? Let me try. <laughs> Let me try here. It's a bit of a stretch here, but uh, stay with me. In the book of Nehemiah, in the scriptures, Nehemiah is one of the, the key leaders of the Israelites, and he's part of this assembly where the word of God is being read, and some people are feeling pricked in their conscience, convicted over their sin. And at the end of this time, Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 8.10, to God's people, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so here Nehemiah is associating eating choice food that you enjoy, sweet drinks, and the joy of the Lord. We can experience joy in the Lord as we receive his gifts of good food food that we love. And so God restores Elijah through the restorative gifts of sleep, of nutritious food and drink. And he also gives Elijah the opportunity to move his body outdoors. Now, as a disclaimer, let me say, Elijah probably isn't thinking of this as exercise. You know, in his era, they wouldn't have thought in the same categories that we do. But Elijah is moving his body a lot outdoors. He runs from Mount Carmel 
to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, which, uh, well, he runs from, I'm sorry, um, Mount Carmel to the wilderness of Judah, which is about 20 miles. And then after he's strengthened by food and drink and sleep, he runs for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where Moses originally received the Ten Commandments. And there's something about moving our bodies outdoors that can strengthen us and make us more resilient. Kelly McGonigal is a psychologist who teaches at Stanford. And in her book, The Joy of Movement, she points out that the typical North American person spends 93% of their time indoors. She also points out that when people are engaged in what she describes as green exercise, when they are moving their bodies outdoors through walking or running or biking or swimming in the ocean, within five minutes, people regularly report a change in their mood and outlook. She points out that when people are moving their bodies outdoors, again, walking, running, biking, whatever, um, within five minutes, they may say, I feel more disconnected from my everyday problems and anxieties and more connected to life itself. When people are moving their bodies outdoors, uh, they, they say, I feel like my internal clock has slowed and therefore time feels like it's expanding for me. They say, when I'm outdoors, I feel like my agitated mind grows quiet and calm. And so one of the gifts that God might want to give to restore us, as he gave Elijah, is the opportunity to move our bodies outdoors. Sleep, food, the opportunity to move our body outdoors. And then, as we look at the text, we see that God sent Elijah an angel, an angel who touches Elijah twice. And then later, we see that God sends Elijah a companion who happens to be his successor, Elisha, a friend. A friend who helps sustain him on the journey. If you were here last Sunday, you would have heard Craig Greenfield speak to us. His uh, context, his primary context is Cambodia. And he talked to us about how David experienced resilient faith in part because of his friendship with Jonathan. And they were able to share with one another the gifts of courage and vulnerability and sacrifice. And as a result, they, they grew stronger together. In the Bible, we see that God provides Ruth with Naomi and Naomi with Ruth. And this friendship sustains them during a very dark and discouraging time in their lives. I've shared with some of you how uh, years ago, I went through a painful breakup. It was a dark time in my life, and my friend and, and mentor, Leighton Ford, sent me a copy of Henry Nouwen's published diary called The Inner Voice of Love, where Nouwen describes a painful relationship rupture that he went through. The book encouraged me, lifted me, but even more, Leighton's phone calls and his, his presence, so he was geographically distant, his emotional and spiritual presence helped me make it through that, that difficult time. And a friend can lift us up and sustain us. 
One of the single greatest predictors as to whether we will experience joy in any given day is if we have meaningful contact with friends or relatives. Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, in his brilliant book, Thinking Fast and Slow, writes, it is only a slight exaggeration to say that happiness is the experience of spending time with people you love and who love you. Isn't that good? It is only a slight exaggeration to say that happiness is the experience of spending time with people you love and who love you. And so God can use, if not a literal angel, God can use a friend, the presence of someone in our life, to encourage us, to lift us up, so that we live with resilient faith. Food, sleep, movement outdoors, friendships. Now let me say this in parentheses. If you are feeling really down and, and, and depressed, uh, chances are that you don't want to reach out and connect with a friend. You don't want to move your body outdoors. You probably want to just stay under the covers in bed. Or maybe you want to binge on ice cream or on Netflix or scroll through social media. Professor Arthur Brooks, who teaches at Harvard, points out when you're in this state, you need to engage in something that he calls the reverse signal strategy to do exactly the opposite of what you feel like doing. Instead of binging on whatever, connect with a person. Go out and take a walk. Go for a run. And, and that will tend to uplift you. It sounds very counterintuitive, but it, it makes sense if you think about it with a bit of distance. And so finally, God gives Elijah another gift. He says in verse 11, go stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And we read that Elijah stood on the mountain. He stood on Mount Sinai, or also known as Mount Horeb. And then a hurricane-like wind ripped through the mountain, shattering the rocks, but God was not in the wind. And then we read that an earthquake came to the mountain, but God was not in the earthquake. And then we read that there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire came a still, small voice. In one Hebrew translation that I love, there came the sound of the silence. And God was in the sound of the silence. And maybe Elijah had gotten to the place where he thought the only way that God could speak to him was through some dramatic means like fire on Mount Carmel or earthquakes or gale force winds. But God wanted to say to Elijah, I also speak through the still small voice, through the sound of the silence. And God may or may not speak to you in a dramatic way. But perhaps God will speak to you in a quiet way through a still small voice or through the sound of the silence. Maybe through the beauty of creation. Simon Vey says, 
The beauty of the world is the tender smile of Christ to us through matter. The beauty of the world around us is the tender smile of Christ to us through matter. And God can reveal himself to us through creation, through the world. Or God may reveal himself to us through the countenance of a friend or a family member. Or through nourishing food that we enjoy. Or through music or something that's every day. Michael Gerson is a gifted journalist who happens to be the friend of a friend. Michael says, I, like one in ten people, struggle with an insidious disease called depression. The chemical imbalance in my brain causes me to think that everyone hates me and that life is not worth living. Michael says, in my case, medicine that my physician has prescribed has helped to thin the fog in my brain. And this medicine has helped me see glimmers of the larger world outside of the prison of my sadness. Michael writes these words. The answer to the temptation, believing that life is utterly meaningless, is not an argument. The answer to this temptation um, is not an argument, though philosophy can clear away a lot of intellectual foolishness. The answer is the experience of transcendence. We cannot explain or explain away. There is this difference for a Christian believer. At the end of all of our striving and longing, we find not a force, but a face. God's promise is somewhat different. That even when strength fails, there is perseverance. And even when perseverance fails, there is hope. And even when hope fails, there is love. And love never fails. Michael is saying that what ultimately sustains us is not an argument. It's not an argument, but an experience of transcendence, an experience of God. What ultimately will uphold us is not a force, but a face. And when we look at God in the face of Jesus Christ, we experience a love that never fails. When we look into the face of Jesus Christ, he says to us, as the Father has loved me perfectly, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. When you look into the face of Jesus, he says, I lay down my life for you so that you might know life now and forever. And as we turn to Jesus Christ, we experience the love that never fails. And we become people of resilient faith. We become more than conquerors through the one who loved us. Let's pray together. I wonder if you would like to receive the restorative gifts that God might want to bestow upon you. 
Maybe it's the gift of good sleep or nourishing food, moving your body outdoors, the presence of an angel or a friend, or perhaps it is the voice of God which may come to you in the sound of the silence. Whatever it is, receive the gifts that God has for you. Perhaps in your heart, say, God, I receive whatever it is that you have for me. Help me to receive the gift you have for me. Help me to receive you. And in you may I know the life that is truly life. The life that will lift me up, strengthen and sustain me. Now and always. May it be so for you and for me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.